so Rebecca, I have an email from a patron here who wants us to answer some questions about whether or not therapists care and what mm. sort of uh, he he really wants his therapist to start opening up with him and tell him more information about her. So I thought oh. I have some things to say about it. What do you say we talk about that today? Uh, I'm, I'm ready. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca? Uh, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a author, a podcaster, a therapist, a parent, a fiber artist. I'm an Instagrammer. Seattleite. I'm a Seattleite. An ex-Antiochian. I like sushi. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but not long walks on the beach because Seattle beaches are oh. cold and windy. Well, I always say if you want to go to the beach here, you need to picture that scene from the first Harry Potter movie where uh, the big guy is delivering the letter and they're like in that cave at, at the beach and it's like, you know, huge storms and big, huge waves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the. That's beach. what it's like. Except you, like except you have to add like the smell of dying seaweed. Mm, you know? Yeah, I love that smell. I do too, actually. When I live downtown, and when I go to Antioch, which is downtown, every I don't know every third time I'm down there, there's a good breeze coming in off mm. of the off of the sound, and you get that rotten fish, mm-hmm. just you know dying seaweed smell, and it's just it just you know just a hint of it just you know brings a smile to my face. So. A patron, an anonymous patron wrote in, he says, hello, I am in therapy for the first time and feeling many intense emotions. Mm-hmm. Are therapists ever vulnerable to their clients? She seems so guarded as if she does not trust me. I really like her and I feel we have a good therapeutic relationship, though. I have been seeing my therapist for over a year now, and it has got to the point where I am basically obsessing over her. I, re- I really feel like I want more from my therapist now and for her to be herself and comfortable around me and to share more about herself. Rebecca, what do you think? I would say that's not her job. <laughs> what is her job? Her job is to be a blank slate so that you can project all your kookiness all over her. Like that you want to, like, what do you think's going to happen if you know her better? Because actually the therapy's not going to get better. Um, the fact that you know nothing allows you to say all kinds of things. It's actually what brings a certain type of balance to the therapeutic relationship is that it's all about you. It's okay that it's all about you. Right. Enjoy it. Why do you think he wants more of her? Why do you think he wants her to be more open about her life and her feelings and stuff? Well, for some people, they think they would be more open if their therapist was more open. Um, like, it's not like a competition, but it's just like, you know, I just talk about myself all the time and I'd feel so much more comfortable if I knew something about you. But really, that's not the case. It's, you know, he has some blocks for a reason and it's easy to project those onto the therapist instead of taking responsibility and saying, you know, I'm stuck for whatever reason. And I'm also obsessed with you. <laughs> I'm sure any therapist would love to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the one question he's asking is, are therapists ever ever vulnerable to their clients? And the answer I have to say is, yes, certainly you have therapists. that It depends on what we mean by vulnerable. But, yeah, there's a spectrum of vulnerability that therapists will generally have with their clients. And, and different therapists will be will have, probably have different levels of vulnerability with different clients. 
it depends on your approach. But the issue at hand that I, the way I would frame it is one, what are you comfortable with as, as a therapist to do? Two, what's your general approach and, and how does vulnerability fit into that? And then three, what's the harm and four, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the benefit? So for me, if a, and occasionally this happens, if a client were to ask me to be quote unquote more vulnerable, I would, I would have a long conversation about that. And if I determined that a little bit of vulnerability might go a long way, I'm, I might talk about my own person, if they wanted to know some, my own personal opinion on a political topic or something, if I felt like it was going to help him, um, you know, there's a chance that I might reveal that. But it would always, in the back of my head, I'd be like, make sure this isn't going to ruin the relationship and make sure that this is actually going to help, you know. Um, and there's a there's an option there of just being like, you know what, I, I don't think ultimately that's what you really want. I, I think you have an urge for that, but I, I don't think that that's going to help you. So, so it really depends now, but I would never just be like vulnerable in the way that I think this guy wants her to be vulnerable, which is let's just be friends, you know, let's, let's have me sit down and I ask you about your life and you ask me about my life and we both cry together sometimes and we both, you know, we're equals and it's a friendship. And so that I would never do with a client, uh, not because I don't want to open up because actually there's part of me that would love to turn all my clients into my friends, you know, to have like, you know, 10 friends a week that I could just open up to and say whatever I want to with for sure. That'd be great. But they would one, not benefit from that and and two, be harmed by that. And three, no one would want to see me after that. (laughs) They'd be like, my therapist talks about himself too much, which is a very common complaint that I will hear from clients. You know, they'll say like, um, you know, I have what's one complaint about my therapist. He talks too much. You know, it's, it's like something that clients typically don't like in the end. Another question this patron is asking is, can I ask my therapist to be more, to be vulnerable and to put her guard down with me? And my answer to that, well, what's your answer to that? Uh, Rebecca? I would say, no, they work hard all day. And that guard is up there for a reason. Like but, it'd be but, like saying to a you would never say to a construction worker, like, could you just take your helmet off? Like, just for me? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, they need that helmet on. Right. Like, that's their job. <laughs> right. Yeah. The way I would phrase it is, yeah, you can ask, but she's likely to refuse, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, as a therapist or as a client, as a client, you can ask whatever you want to ask, uh, aside from being scary and abusive and creepy. Um yeah, you can ask questions like that, but uh, don't expect to have her say yes, you know, uh, is, is the way I would phrase it. Yeah, I mean, I would say it says more about you than it does about your therapist. Right. So just get ready for it, for your therapist to let you know that that's a interesting question. Right. Um, because it opens up, you know, like, well, what relationships have you had in the past that are really intimate? Right. Um, are you trying to practice something with this therapist? Is there something that's really intriguing about this therapist? Have you never been in a relationship before that's so one-sided? Is that what's overwhelming for you? Um, yeah, I mean, it's 
those boundaries are there for a reason because, you know, I'm seeing many, many clients a day. Um, and so that consistency of having that kind of boundary up, it just allows me to have it with everyone, if that makes sense. Like if I had to think like, oh, this is the client I let my boundaries down with, you know, like um, there's a good chance I would forget and do it in the next session. But there's kind of like a way of being that I have to be all day to do this work, if that makes sense. And um, it, being pretty distant is part of that. And whenever I start talking about myself, I have to remember to shut up, <laughs> let it go back to the client because that's why they're here. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that he's experiencing a, a common phenomenon of clients. I, I went back and forth with him for a bit and he told me that he was emotionally neglected his entire life. He, right. he he's like, he's about 30 and he's, he's never had, uh, really a, a close, intimate, caring relationship with someone. And, you know, so he's, he's coming from that place of deficit and, has tremendous need and thirst for intimacy and closeness and security, and he deserves that. And when he goes to therapy, thank God, he encounters someone who is listening and who doesn't reject him and who uh, allows him to be who he wants to be. And, and he naturally wants to be even closer to her because it feels so good. And by, and he, so he has this impulse of like, okay, this feels great. How great would it feel if I was even closer to her is, is kind of the, the thinking he has. And, but he does, what he doesn't realize is, is at least consciously before communicating with me and maybe some other people is that, French, the closer, if you know, if you want to turn this person into a friend, friendships are two-way streets. Uh, they are, uh, they now involve her needs. And so you would have to care for her needs. And what if she doesn't like the way you care for her needs? Mm -hmm. And then she's like, I don't like this person. I don't want to hang out with this person anymore. Or she has other people in her life that meet her needs in ways that you could never meet. And so if you, if, if you were to truly become friends, which, of course, would not happen or wouldn't be recommended, the chance of the relationship lasting very long is actually not very high. The chance of a therapeutic relationship lasting a long time is actually extremely high, as long as the therapist doesn't move and you don't move and blah, blah, blah. Like, you could have – you could potentially – have a relationship with your therapist that lasts for decades and and every step of the way it could be healing whereas if you turn it into a friendship the chance of that particular friendship lasting for decades is not very high mm -hmm. and 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 also that the healing nature of it will not necessarily be as present you know because she might say, if she's truly herself, she might say things you don't like. <laughs> and you're going to be like, you know what? I've lost some respect for her and I don't really like her in that way. And she kind of annoys me and it's all about her all the time, you know, and, and then the relationship falls apart. And so there's, there's a real huge benefit to having a relationship like this. Now for the patron, you definitely deserve a lot of relationships, you know, not just this one. You deserve 
to have romantic relationships. You deserve to have family members who have a mutual caring. You deserve friends who mutually support each other. You deserve colleagues and, you know, you deserve a lot of enriching, close, intimate, helpful, supportive relationships outside of this therapeutic relationship. The problem is, from the sound of it, you only have one of those relationships and it happens to be with a therapist. And so you're pouring all of your energy into that relationship and hoping that it will meet all of the other needs that you deserve to have met. Uh, And hopefully over time, you can start to cultivate relationships outside of the therapeutic relationship that can uh, begin to meet those other needs that are more appropriate for those other kinds of relationships. Does that make sense, Rebecca? Yeah. I mean, I was going to say to view this relationship with his therapist as practice for hopefully other beneficial relationships you will have in the, in the future. Right. And that part of the practice is um, practicing what it likes what it's like to feel intimate. He's getting this practice. It's kind of like uh, in a batting cage. It's like a one-way relationship. <laughs> um, so, but to know that, um, you know, I am such a different friend than I am a therapist. You know, just the other night, my friend came over with a really big problem. And I was too tired. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Let's just pull a tarot card. Like, I'm, like, I'm so sorry, but like, I got nothing for you. <laughs> Let's pull a tarot card. <laughs> that was actually my answer. Um, Did you do it? Did you pull yeah. a tarot card? What did yeah. it say? Uh, Fuck off. I don't want to hear anymore. No. Uh, what happened? They like the tarot card. They, they, they got something out of their tarot card. Do your friends ever say, but you're a therapist. You're supposed to be a good listener. I think by now, anyone who's friends with me knows that, I mean, and some of my friends I have endless energy for. Like, I also get those, you know, I mean, I get stuff. Oh, my God. I get texts like, my son, I just looked over at my son's phone, and he's texting with his friend about cutting. What should I do? You know, like, I mean, I get that stuff, but I think everybody gets that stuff. Um But I guess as a therapist, I feel a little bit more like, oh, I should jump in and help and do whatever I can. Um, But yeah, you know, it's a friendship and therapy. It's just really different. And I often say that to my clients. Like you could have this conversation with any of your friends. What do you want to bring to therapy today? You know, like it should be different. It's a very different type of relationship. Oh, interesting. So when a client sits down and just kind of talks about their day in a way that they would talk to a friend, you will confront them on that and say, what are you avoiding? Or how about you use the time more, um, you know, more helpfully and more in line with therapy? Is that what you're saying? If there's something really big going on, you know, I'll say what's most important for us to talk about today. Yeah. Um, Because I understand it's important. Like sometimes you just chit chat, but, you know, they can probably chit chat with a lot of people. Yeah, I, the the few clients I can think of off the top of my head who would do that sort of thing were all of them I, were really wanting me to confront them on that every time. <laughs> I, I had a client who it was a routine that we just went through. Uh, she she would sit down and I I loved her. We I you know she was a long term client and um, very fond of her, but. She would sit down or sit and and she would sit down and for the first 15, 30 minutes, she would talk to me in a way that was the way she would talk to a friend or a coworker or something, just sort of catching up. You know, this is what Mm -hmm. happened this week and this is what I did. And 
And then I would always ask as a routine, so how are you feeling this week? How, or <laughs> how, how are you feeling today? It was just this a simple question. You know, how, how are you feeling today? And that's all I had to ask. And she would instantly start to cry and would mm. instantly tell me, it would instantly go deeper, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it would just became a routine. And I realized over time that she needed a bit of time to get comfortable, I guess. Um, and it's because if I just started at the gates of like, how are you feeling? She, she would sort of force the conversation back to the surface stuff for a while. And, mm-hmm. and I determined that's our, that's our gig. That's our thing, you know, and that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but she would, I, I know, and she would tell me explicitly that she really appreciated that I would take the risk and ask her instead of, cause I, cause I would have got paid the same if, if right. I just, if I just stuck to her uh, talking about her week. And honestly, it, it, it would have been a lot easier for me. And I, I could have, you know, talked about my week too, and she probably would have been fine with that. And so, uh, but I, you know, as you're saying, we have a professional responsibility, uh, even a, perhaps a moral responsibility to, uh, confront clients when they when they do that stuff and get them to uh, use the time for what they actually really want to use the time for. So um, I have uh, so then I, so I go back and forth with the patron about this, and I'm telling them basically in a shorter form what we're saying now, and I'm saying you know look I get that you want to be close. Um, I, I might have even said something like this is this is actually similar to the way that some clients will fall in love with their therapist. Yeah. And cause what he's talking about is very akin to that. He's not saying love or lust, but he's saying he's obsessed with her, you know, Great. Which, fascinated. Yeah. Which sounds, you know, a, adjacent to romantic attraction or something. And the, uh, hypothesis that always seems to be, uh, born out over time is that the client, because of emotional neglect in their life, when they finally come to us and we don't reject them and, and we listen really well and we're interested and we and we exude caring and empathy, that for the first time in their life, they are looking at, they're, they're sitting across just a couple feet away, you know, I contact galore with another human being once a week who cares and they all of these needs come pouring out and all of these feelings of gratification like oh my god this person makes me feel so good this person is soothing a part of me that has been aching my entire life I want to be with this person forever I want to be with this person 24 7 and of course the client has that reaction because it's logical, <laughs> but it's not, it's not wise, you know, is the thing, but it's logical, but it's not, it's not wise. And it's up to the therapist to help clients understand that and to uh, ride that balance between, you know, definitely est- uh, establishing the boundary while at the same time valuing the client's uh, feelings, um, which is a, a a difficult place to be depending on how intense the feelings are from the client. And, and I've been there many times. I've had many clients who 
have expressed that and I'm and when it happens I'm 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 totally comfortable with it it doesn't freak me out you know it's like a client will at the, I guess at the extreme end the client will say you know what I think I'm in love with you mm-hmm. um, or they'll just give me the impression that they have I don't know just they're thinking about me a lot let's just put it that way and that's normal when I go to my therapist same thing <laughs> you know like there, there are times when I've gone through that as well and there's nothing strange about it it's just an indication of a need that has not that's not being met and hasn't been met and that's okay um, so uh, he so we go back and forth and he's like you know what I, I get it you know this patrons like I think I understand and he said, you know what, I've also been asking other therapists about hmm. this as well. I haven't just been asking you, Kirk. So he, he sent me a, uh, a correspondence between him and this other therapist that he found. I don't know how, he, I'm not going to say the name of the therapist. He gave me the name, but, um, and it looks like a legitimate therapist. But, uh, and I'm just going to quote what this other therapist said. Uh, so get so strap yourself in, buckle buckle up for this one. Okay, Rebecca. there's going to be a sound effect. Of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so he says, once in a while, I like telling the truth about therapists. For the most part, they're con artists, nothing more. Oh, this is the, the therapist says this. Yeah, this is the therapist telling mm-hmm. the patron, you know, his his advice. For the most part, they're con artists, nothing more. A passive-aggressive set of people that won't allow you to peek behind the curtain. I would venture to say that 98% of all therapists are simply there so they can, so you can buy them a boat. They, oh, wow. They simply want to build up enough patients to have a secretary, have the right furniture, and be able to take off whenever they want. Most therapists don't really care about helping you. They care about solidifying their situation in life, their station in life, sorry. They're corporate robots for the most part. And this is the exact reason most of them do not like me because I actually help my clients. I don't need to spend years and years helping a client. Only about 3% of individuals in therapy actually need therapy. A lot of analysts have simply become the lost parent that the child needs to talk to once in a while the lost parent that isn't threatening and you don't know any of their foibles. So Rebecca, what do you think about this? Uh, you know, my, where's my boat? <laughs> yeah. That was the first thing I thought too, was just like, um, I don't know. I don't think I know a single therapist who owns a boat. Like I, I, I do know one. Oh, you do. Yeah. Is it a good boat? It's a good boat. Oh, really? Um, yeah, but it's not very common for therapists. I mean, I, my first thought was this therapist is in New York or something where people can charge outrageous amounts of money. And, um, yeah, I, this is not how I experience most therapists. And I feel like most of my clients really need to be in therapy. Right. Um, I, way over 3%. Right. So, uh, I can see why this person wrote your client right back because uh, it really feeds his ego to let out this secret. Right. Um, I love the quote, once in a while. Like, I don't think it's once in a while. I think probably lots of people hear this from you. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, I've heard this. So reading between the lines, this therapist is 
probably he probably calls himself a brief therapist or a solution focused ther- therapist or a postmodern therapist or something. There's there's a there's a certain group of therapists who are dogmatic about brief therapy, and and I'll say as a caveat, I am a firm believer and user of these theories, but the culture of some of these individuals is so um, annoying to me that I don't like to associate myself with them. And this guy is talking exactly the way that I've, I've heard this exact same speech from so many, and it's usually men, by the way. Oh yeah. I was going to say this whole thing is so male. Yeah. I, I, like it, I, my client, I help my clients. I'm like, yeah. of course you do because you're a man and the clients are compliant. Whereas most female therapists have to deal with all kinds of things that you could never imagine, but go, go on. Right. And, and it's, it's this, it's this, um, I, I think that, so I, I think what happens to a lot of people is like this is they enter the field of counseling and they don't know anything about theory, right? They're, they're just like, like most people, they just enter and then they get exposed somehow or their program is only designed to teach brief therapies. There are certain programs that particularly family therapy programs, uh, I would say like, I don't know, five, 10% of family therapy programs are uh, are completely dismissive of other theories and will only teach solution focused or narrative or Milton Erickson or these kinds of things. And what ends up happening is this echo chamber among them. And they're, they're sometimes attacked by the outside. So it's not like they're, they don't have reason to sort of strike back, but, but, um, they end up saying all these same sentences like, you know, uh, most therapists are in it for the money and they want to make clients dependent and therapy is, you know, good therapy is brief therapy. And if you're, you know, if you're with a client for longer than a couple months, then you're either just trying to suck them dry for money or you're trying to make yourself feel better or, you know, there's just all these statements that, of course, I will say can be true at times. It's not like they're not, it's not an option or not a possibility for, for a therapist to be all about money and to suck their clients dry, but to blanketly label 99% of the profession as all corporate goons who are in it for the money and just trying to make clients dependent is like empirically incorrect. And, and so, uh, He's he's just talking like that. But anyway, um, so just to get into the specific quotes, because I, I just love all this stuff. It, it's it's just such an arrogant, mansplainer prick of a person. Um, I mean, all I could think of when I was reading this was just arrogant prick. That's all I could think. Was just like the, he this guy's the definition of arrogant prick. You know, it's like Jiminy Cricket. So, quote: Once in a while, I like telling the truth about therapists. For the most part, they're con artists, nothing more. A passive-aggressive set of people that won't allow you to peek behind the curtain. So to that, I'm like, con, con artists? Like, wow, uh, where does that come from? And then passive-aggressive, I'm not even sure what the point there is, right? Like, what's what sort of aggression are therapists universally passively I think this guy got dumped by his wife who was a therapist. 
Andor has that's, gotten to a and, lot and of... She, and she got the boat. I think that's what <laughs> Andor, he's been in a lot of, of verbal arguments with other therapists like you and I who take issue with his arrogant, prickish attitudes. But before going on with this uh, email, I want to take a break. What do you say? All right. All right. Back from the break. If you haven't already become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you go there, uh, become a patron of podcast Psychology in Seattle, and you'll get access to hundreds of deep dives that are only for patrons. There are episodes that only patrons can listen to. And you also don't have to listen to a majority of the ads and also know that a portion of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Do they still get the mug? Uh, if you're a $20 patron, you get the, you get a mug. Also, there is a... You, go ahead. If you want to know what I look like, <laughs> oh, yeah. you should get the mug. Well, because I'm on the mug. You are actually on the mug. And... It, you can just go to our website and see a picture of you, oh, Psychology in Seattle. Um, also, there's a live event that we're having Ooh. in Seattle. Did you know about this? No, you don't tell me anything. Well, I just we just we just scheduled it. Um, so people have been asking for a live event for Ooh. a long time. We've been doing the podcast for nine years, and so that's amazing. Your so, your level of commitment. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and over the years I've always been like, eh, I don't know, like who would want to come and, you know, what if I plan the event and no one comes or, or one person comes or, or what, how am I supposed to entertain a group? Say, say a hundred people come, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. Do we just do a podcast in front of them? That sounds really I think that's what you do. So. So, but uh, lately I've been going to other podcast live events, like mm -hmm. other podcasts that I like, and I've been learning <laughs> and from the masters. Yeah. And I've been like, oh, okay, I could see doing something like that. And then I was just every once in a while, I just sort of daydream about the podcast and I'm like, oh, I wonder, cause I sent out a survey to all the patrons and one of the major takeaways was a lot of patrons wanted a live event. I'm just like... Okay, you know, how do I make this happen? And <laughs> how do I please my fans? It's I mean, so overwhelming. I definitely want to do it, but I just don't know what I'm doing is the thing. And so and then I was like, okay, well, where would I have it? And the the venue that always would pop into my head was the Rendezvous. Do you know the Rendezvous? Oh, yes. That'd be a rowdy event. Well, because they have like three different rooms you can rent. So it's it's oh, a Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, in the back. And, and as a band <laughs> as a band <laughs> It shows you how little I know <laughs> that the rendezvous is a bad room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as a band person, I have rented their their band room before to, you know, essentially like I think for a hundred bucks, you rent this back room in this bar and it's a, it's an, it looks like an old porn theater is what we called it. Mm. It's got like red curtains and everything. And then you charge $5 cover. And then, you know, if you make $300 revenue, then you take $200, you know, it's just kind of, you, so you pay the, and they give you a sound guy and everything. And it's kind of cool that way because you don't have to deal with bookers and in other uh, venues and stuff. But anyway, so I sort of knew about those venues and I was thinking, well, what about that? And then I thought, well, it's at a bar and, and, and rendezvous is kind of sleazy in some ways. And, and I thought, you know, that seems kind of funny. And, and then, it just popped into my head. I was like, why not have it at Antioch? Yeah. Because 
I'm a professor there, and you get uh, free space. Yeah, and and I know that I know administration, and I've worked a lot with the marketers and everything. And so I reached out to the marketing director, and I was like, "How? What, what do you think about having a live event at Antioch?" And she was totally up for it. And so they're going to turn it into like a recruitment thing for Antioch mm-hmm. for prospective students, but it'll be it'll be a live event that I won't have to pay rent for. <laughs> We'd love that. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lobby and then they're going to have like, imp- Antioch employees are going to work the door and stuff because they're also going to invite pr- prospective students who don't even know about the podcast, you know, like come check out what one of the professors is doing kind of a thing. And so it's this, you know, perfect scenario. And then I'm also thinking like, if this works out, why not do it? more times this is probably more information than anyone ever wants to know but i you know it's all i'm fascinated <laughs> and we're I'm in the, come we're in the new building yeah so part of this is me telling that you gotta go you, you have to be there yeah be, because uh i just at least i'll know one person will be there is the thing <laughs> so when is it so it's january 27 and it's gonna be either at one or three I'm not right, sure when, get but this, I got to put this on my schedule right now. Yeah. Jan- oh, done. Okay. January. 27. 27. It's a weekend. Very good. Yeah. So don't go to my Nia class. Okay. What time? Uh, afternoon sometime. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm fiddling around with the time, but, um, but more, more details to come essentially. It, it'll only be for an hour or two or something. And then I was thinking uh, dinner in Belltown and then maybe karaoke somewhere. <laughs> Ooh, this is like a night on the town. Yeah. Get this a babysitter. Like more, more fun than I've had in a long time. Yeah. But you and karaoke. We've never done karaoke together. Wow. And, you know, I'm my uh, Tom Petty karaoke has gone to a new level. And so I'm really ready. What's your what's your Tom Petty jam? My Tom Petty jam Refugee? is Refugee? American free Girl? Fall, free oh, fall. Free Fallen. Awesome. Because for some reason, I don't know why this is, but I've got really good breath control, and I can do the Free Fallen for like a really long time. Like it's kind I'm of my... Free! Just like go. It's my signature move is to just keep... While everybody else is doing everything else, I'm just like Free Fallen like on my own. And you're, you're holding <laughs> that and you're holding that note I'm for No, no, I'm just and it's a, it's a crowd pleaser, I yeah. have to say. Yeah, it's a great song. So, uh right, so this is 2018, by the way, January 27, 2018, depending on when you're listening to this episode. Right. You could be listening to this like 10 years in the future. Right. And if you are, uh congratulations on a different president. <laughs> Um, and, and, and I hope that like the sea is not lapping at your front door, but well, okay. that's, that's a guarantee. <laughs> um, so if you manage to, you know, get above the sea line, apoc- yeah. Apocalypse. And um, there's still bees. I hope there's still bees. And yeah, yeah. it's funny that we can laugh about these things, you know? Oh, they're so horrible. Yeah. Um, so, uh, now, uh, I, I've sent out some announcements over Patreon and the, Facebook page and stuff and and people have been emailing and they're just like, you know, where do I stay? And and I don't know. 
well, that's the answer to that question. But I do know that there's a, a pretty popular hostel downtown Seattle, which isn't too far. It's probably just, I don't know, five or six blocks away. You the, could probably get a deal with one of the hotels that are right there. Maybe. Called the Green Tortoise. Do you know the Green Tortoise Hostel? I have ridden on that. That's yeah. like for if people are in a serious budget. Yeah. But it's, also, it's, people should know, like, this is an Airbnb town. Yeah. And you could probably get a cool pl- – here's my advice. Okay. Lay it <laughs> on I me. Was, if I was booking your trip, if this was my Pinterest page, um, you know, get a cool Airbnb on Seattle, on um, Capitol Hill or in Belltown. And, like, really – if you're coming to Seattle for the first time, this is a fun town. Maybe not in January so much. Bring your muckalucks and your heaviest parka. But, you know, you're going to eat some good food and meet some nice people and drink some great coffee. And we should come up with a restaurant list (laughs) where people should eat while you're here. Yeah, Capitol Hill, Belltown, uh, Airbnb, or, I don't know, Queen Anne, Ballard. You can get Airbnb. I'm guessing Ballard has cheaper Airbnbs. Uh, or just get an Airbnb up in North Seattle or South, you know, further from downtown and take Ubers all over town. It's 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 a great place to visit. Yeah, uh, I scheduled it for January 27 because it is uh, after the finals of the NFL and before oh. and the and the weekend before the Super Bowl. So, so you think people will be free? <laughs> right. It's it's actually the weekend of the Pro Bowl, which no one watches. So, no, no, yes. So it's it's free for that um, for selfish reasons as well. But um, but yeah, I, I, I'm planning on basically having a a presentation with a number of different elements because when I go to other live events, that's always kind of the thing. You know, you have different segments, right? So. Maybe I'll do a monologue. <laughs> I'll, All I'll, right. I'll, I'll work up like a like a monologue for a bit. Maybe we'll play some tougher bluffs. Maybe there'll be like a, maybe we'll show some pictures. And I was thinking about having like team tougher bluff in the audience. You know, like East versus West or something. Mm-hmm. You know, to do the Pro Bowl kind of deal. And then um, uh, and then Q and A and pictures afterwards. I'm I'm thinking about actually hiring a, a photographer. And I'm also thinking about like having some major announcement that you can only get if you're at the live event. Oh. And I'm also planning on not recording it, actually. Really? But, yeah. Beca- you have to be there. Yeah, because I don't want to have to worry about that because it's such a pain in the ass to record an event like that. And it's also really a pain in the ass to um, edit it because mm-hmm. – Live events have long strings of time of dead air, you know, as you're, um, you know, especially if you're doing crowd work, you know. And so um, so if you if you want to come now, if you're like, oh, my God, um, I want to come. But that weekend, you know, it's my brother's wedding. What do I do? We're going to do other if this goes well enough. We're going to do other live events that I, I have in my head. If this goes well it would be logical to at least do it once a year, if not a couple times a year. And if it goes well for Antioch, then they'll gladly go along with it. <laughs> and and as long as people come every time, it's it's and especially if I do this a number of times, it'll be a lot less effort on my part. And mm-hmm. and the, so the payoff will be great because for me, what I'm really looking forward to, selfishly, because it's all about me anyway, is 
meeting people. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I, I occasionally will meet uh, listeners, and but it's very rare. It's it's uh, I, I, unless they're a student at Antioch or there are like my mom, it's pretty rare that I'll actually get to meet the listeners. And to me, the podcast at its core is basically a conversation between me and the listeners. You know, they email me, we're, you know, we're responding to an email with a listener right now. That's where all the meaning for me comes from. You know, I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is I I read and respond to emails from listeners. It's just like, and you just know that since that's what I do, I like to do it, you know, because I could totally avoid it and just be like, well, you know, I'm not going to respond to that email or whatever. Yeah, the amount of listeners, the amount of time (laughs) that Kirk puts into this podcast is astounding. It's a labor of love for him, and he's been doing it a really, really long time. And this list, this live podcast is a celebration of his life's work, which is this podcast. Wow. So I think you should show up. <laughs> yeah, well, I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. Birdo will obviously be there uh, to uh, round out the uh, situation. Uh, you'll be there, Rebecca, which is awesome. Uh, I'm guessing my parents will be there because <laughs> they come to everything that I do. Um, and in classic form, my parents will not be there because <laughs> I don't have those kinds of parents. Yeah, my parent, like I, my they came to my dissertation defense. They came to like a a lecture I gave at at Antioch once. Um, God bless them. Yeah, I don't really invite. I'm not like telling them they should come, but they're just like, well, of course we're going to go. You know, they came, my dad went to every football game I ever played and he, he would even go to practices and stuff like my parents are just very dedicated. They're uh, attentive and you can see that in Kirk's personality now. (laughs) Good, (laughs) solid parenting. Where I'm arrogant and full of myself because my parents. You can see in my sassy, bitter nature. (laughs) That I come from a divorced household. <laughs> uh, yeah, so my Burl, you parents, uh, I'm I'm guessing other faculty at Antioch will be there. I, I've yet to tell them about that. But they're um, going to show up. <laughs> uh, hopefully, and so it, it, yeah. So I don't know. As I talk about it, it sounds like a very intimidating, scary event, and my armpits are starting to sweat a little bit about it. But well, let me tell you one skill I would volunteer at the event, which is I'm really good at that part in Pictionary, like where you have to do the blindfolded drawing or draw with your eyes closed. Yeah. So if that's a skill you need, you know, a party trick you need during the event, like maybe, you know, just to kind of as people are settling in, you can give me like a drawing task and I'll do it with my eyes closed. <laughs> I'd be willing to volunteer to get the crowd warmed up with that one. So. That, that sounds like a fa- I'll put I'm going to put that on the agenda. Just it's number one. Actually, we're just going to do that for like two hours. You're you're going to I'm just going to it's just going to be me saying random things to Rebecca <laughs> while she can't see and she's just drawing pictures. That's the whole event. I think it's like theater of the absurd. I think it's going to be a big hit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to it and hopefully people will be there. And honestly, even if just a couple people come locally, it, it, I, I'll still enjoy it. Cause, cause like I said, the, the one of the major barriers in the past was 
me worrying that I would actually have to shell out money and then no one would come. In this instance, it's just at Antioch and I don't have to shell out any money. And so if no one comes, it's just like, oh, okay, well, that's that. Never do that again, <laughs> you know, and, and it's not any, you know, expense to me, I guess. And so, um, yeah. So January 27, I guess there's a chance that if some people are traveling and getting maybe here on Friday, we might do a Friday night thing too. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll see. Keep uh, keep listening and watch the Facebook. I'll probably make an event page on Facebook to keep track of everything. So like the Psychology in Seattle podcast Facebook page. Um, the one it's just called Psychology in Seattle. Um, there's a Psychology in Seattle fan group, which is different. But anyway. Okay, so let's go on with this email. So this is another quote from this fella who emailed the patron, uh, this brief therapist. I would venture to say that 98% of all therapists are simply there so you can buy them a boat. They simply want to build up enough patience to have a secretary, have the right furniture, and be able to take off whenever they want. And again, as you said, who owns a boat? I you, Who has a secretary? I do everything. I do my billing. I answer all the calls. I, you know, photocopy stuff for DHHS and send it off. Like, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Do you know a single therapist who has a secretary? No. And in fact, on TV shows where therapists have secretaries, I can't watch them anymore. Right. Because it's like ridiculous. It No one. Why would you have a secretary when they would just be filing their nails all day because there's nothing to do. You know, there's so little to do. Now, the times when there have been a quote-unquote secretary or receptionist or office worker is when there's an there's an office of 10 or more therapists. And, there, and there's a lobby and there's clients coming in and out all the time. And But even in situations, I, I have friends and colleagues who have group group practices where there's like 20 therapists working in a particular office and they all share the same lobby and they don't have a receptionist. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it's an expense that makes no sense in our field is the thing. Now, if you wanted a billing person, they don't have to work in your office. You can send everything to that billing person and they'll take care of it from wherever they're at. So this whole, so this is, this is when I get to the part in this email where I'm like, is this guy actually a therapist or not? <laughs> because he seems to have a cartoonish version in his head of what a therapist is, you know? Like buying a boat and having secretaries uh, sounds like he's watching a lot of TV about therapy. You know what I mean? Or he lives in Connecticut. I mean, that's my other thought. Like this is like an East Coast thing going on. And it's so far from the world that we live in that we just can't imagine it. But it, it you know, it exists in another parallel world. Interesting. Now, psychiatrists will sometimes have receptionists because they have a tremendous amount of paperwork that they have to manage. And so psychiatrists sometimes will have will have secretaries. But uh, but anyway, so another quote here is most therapists don't really care about helping you. They care about solidifying their station in life. They're corporate robots for the most part. Uh, what do you think about that, Rebecca? I mean, I would say I do everything I can to avoid being a corporate robot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if you met me, I think the last thing you would say is that Rebecca 
she's a corporate robot. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I would say. And I, I, again, what is he talking about? Corporate robots? Like when I think of corporate robot, I think of like a Microsofty or a Boeing engineer or something. Someone who goes to work at eight and works in a cubicle and has a identify, you know, an ID card and toes the line and is very conforming. And when I think about therapists, I think of the direct opposite of that. I mean, if we're going to go like stereotypical therapist, we're talking about an ex-hippie who, uh, you know, uses tarot cards and... (laughs) (laughs) To solve their friends' problems. and, And, you know, that's... Tarot, you know, corporate robot and tarot cards don't go hand in hand. Let's just put it that way. So, again, I'm just like, what are you talking about? The other thing is, is he's saying most therapists don't really care about helping you. And I'm and I'm like, certainly it depends on what we mean by care. But I, I would venture to say that the vast majority of therapists, at least when they're starting out, really do care. They want to help human beings. There's so many other things they could have done with their time and energy and money with their master's degree that have less to do with caring about people. If, if, if you're thinking about another career or furthering your career and you don't care about human beings, get a master's in business. Get a master's in, in marketing. Not that those people don't care about people, but it's much more self-serving because you're much more likely to make a lot of money, you know, whereas getting a master's uh, or even a doctorate, I suppose, in counseling or psychotherapy is, is not, you know, it's not typical that people are like, ha ha, I'm in it for the money. You know, <laughs> it's more like, uh, I really care about human beings. How can I make money and uh, try to make a difference in the world? You know what I mean? So anyway, another quote here is, and this is the exact reason most of them do not like me, because I actually help clients. Uh, again, arrogant prick. Another quote here, only about 3% of individuals in therapy actually need therapy. Now, you commented on this earlier. You're just like, that is not true, right? That's what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, if I were to think about the people that come here. In fact, most of my clients say things like, I really need to come in. Or like just today, I said to a client, hey, I'm going to be gone these weeks. And he said, oh, my God, um, you know, I'm going to have a crisis if you're not there. <laughs> like, you know, we're kind of an intricate part of each other's lives. Right. And the thing people say this sometimes and where they're like, you know, the worried well or no one really needs therapy. And the thing I say to that is that's an extremely complicated thing to talk about because what do we mean by need therapy? It, it's all the, it depends on the eye of the beholder. I'm, I'm sure that this arrogant prick, if he were to talk with all my clients, he would probably determine that most of them don't quote unquote need therapy according to his criteria. But they are, in my, uh, you know, assessment, these, my clients are benefiting from therapy, but do they need it? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> or would they die without it? No, they're not going to die without it. Um, would, do, would they die if they didn't, if I went on vacation for a couple of months? No. So now I get the impression you have clients that are perhaps more in need of therapy, but, but the point is, is that 
it depends on what we mean by by need. The other thing is is there's a lot of different populations in therapy. I mean, you have people who are schizophrenic, you have people who are suicidal, you have people who are uh, severely autistic, you have people who are uh, so oh, se- severe PTSD, like yeah. aren't functioning because of their PTSD symptoms. Like. Right, who who can't step out of the house because of PTSD or gen- or agoraphobia or something. And they need therapy. There's no, there's no doubt about that. You have a, a different set of people where, say, there's a lot of family conflict. Maybe there's conflict between the spouses. It, it, that's a different, shall we say, category of, of clients. Do those people need therapy? You know, it depends on what you mean by need. So there's, yeah, you could, but for an arrogant prick to just blanketly say, I have determined that about 3% of individuals in therapy actually need therapy. Just just that sentence alone is an ignorant statement. It's like, unless you say something like, according to my definition, or some might say, or something like that, but just to blanketly say only 3% of individuals in, th- in therapy actually need therapy is just uh, decries ignorance. Another quote here. A lot of analysts, so that's another quote, that's another indication he's probably in Connecticut, right? Because it's like... Right, who's an analyst anymore? Right, like I don't know, I don't know a single analyst in Seattle. There are some, but they're very rare. Anyway, a lot of analysts have simply become the lost parent that the child needs to talk to once in a while. The lost parent that isn't threatening you and you don't know any of their foibles. What do you say to that, Rebecca? Um, that's... And sometimes, yes, like I am the clients, I am parenting that person in many ways. And that's not bad. Right. That's exactly what I think. I'm so glad you agree. Is that it's like, yeah, uh, exactly. That is what, that's the healing nature of therapy is that the deficits, particularly when you're mistreated and neglected as a child uh, that your parents put you through, one of the best ways to heal from that is through therapy and through through absorbing a sort of parental version of therapy in which the therapist is listening. It's it's more of a one-way relationship. You care. You uh, you know maybe even provide a little bit of feedback. You don't judge. Um, you know it's it's a it's a parental relationship. Yeah, that's that's what differentiates. Therapist, this is. I was just telling a, a supervisee this yesterday because she was, she was, ha, she has this client who is not listening to her as she's trying to teach her cognitive behavioral skills. You know, so she's like, I keep trying to tell her, you know, how to use the skills, and she keeps not doing it, and she keeps asking me for help, and I keep giving her skills, and she keeps coming back, and she's not doing it, and I'm like. Okay, so fine, you want to teach skills, which is great. There's nothing wrong with skills. Skills are great. But that's not what differentiates us from a workbook. What differentiates us from a workbook is a human relationship with someone who cares, with someone who is trained to provide a healing environment for someone who was damaged by relationships in the past. And so in all likelihood, that's what the client is looking for and they're, and they're not looking for skills. And if it was that easy and it was just skills, then they would go on the internet and say, how do I manage my emotions? You know, or how do I have a good life? Or how do I have a good marriage? Or how do I not get angry at people? Like if it was that simple, 
then yeah, by all means, teach people cognitive behavioral skills. Uh, but but it's it's 99% of the time it's not that easy, and the real work gets into the relationship. And so so yeah, you know, uh, I agree that. Um, we have become the lost parent, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. But that is exactly the dogma that I hear a lot of brief therapists say is like, well, you know, well, those other therapists, all they're interested in is is just like recreating a. They just want to be a parent, as if that's a bad thing, you know, right, like as if people don't need that. Right. It's just like it's disgusting that you would be. Uh, dependent, and that's another reason why it's a lot of men who talk this way because men are socialized to abhor dependence and mm-hmm. to uh, humiliate it as a female attribute or something. And so, like, there's just all this disdain around like therapy being uh, a place for people to get enriching dependency. You know, it's like it's 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 very threatening to their defense structure, which probably is a result of the fact that they were neglected as kids and hate their interdependency themselves, if I might be so bold. <laughs> if I might be an arrogant prick to another arrogant prick. Just prick it out. Just <laughs> <laughs> So I think that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself. Why should people take care of themselves? Uh, it's a good lifelong goal, I think, to take care of yourself. <laughs> and you can do it. You can do it. You can. You can reach that goal. 